Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today. But first, I'm trying to order some food, too. What are you getting? Uh, I think I'm going to go really old school and just get some, like, basic Chinese food. Ooh, what do you like, get? The options now on, like, DoorDash and stuff, it's like, you know. What do you get? Uh, just something super uh, fried dumplings and uh, yeah, yeah, or something you know, just uh, yeah, I know. I'm definitely not getting egg drop, drop soup, I'll tell you that. Why, <laughs> why does that make you gassy? No, uh, so a few years ago, um, mm. actually, probably many years now, uh, Brendan, Kara, and I went to and Rob Randall went to a Chinese food restaurant before seeing the Christmas lights in Deerfield, Massachusetts. And uh, we were sitting at the table and Brennan was eating this massive bowl of egg drop, drop soup. And I said something stupid and Brendan literally spat his entire mouthful of egg drop soup in Kara's face. <laughs> <laughs> she had egg dripping from her lip, her eyelids. It was... <laughs> It was, it was horrific. Like <laughs> that is so bad, Brendan. I can't believe you did that. I, I think about this all the time. Like, for whatever reason, whenever I'm with Dave, I somehow am able to piss off Kara so much. And, <laughs> and But when I'm with her, it's just fine. You know, but it's whenever Dave is around, it's like he says something dumb and I can't handle it. And I spit egg drop soup across the table and Kara's face. You know, you've mentioned this before, so I think you are holding in some guilt on this yeah. whole thing. Yeah, it was probably one of the worst things that I've ever done. Yeah, he should be guilty. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of soup. And the look on her face after it was just like, if, if it was somebody else that did it, it would have been the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but but it was me and, and it was the scariest thing that one of the scariest things that i've ever been through these things do happen i heard a story this year when i was at gettysburg just a couple of days ago about last year or no the year before at gettysburg when kathy kraus she plays with the Connecticut rebels she gave tom emmerich her flask which was filled with fireball and apparently tom emmerich is not a fan of fireball so he took a big pull and uh, inadvertently spit it in her face. So Ooh. that happens, right? That's, that's a thing. That yeah, sounds that like stinks. it burns, like and yeah. stings at the same time. Yeah, imagine getting it in your eyeball. I mean, geez. Well, I mean, I, I know the egg. If she didn't wipe it off her eyes, they would have closed shut. <laughs> What's the eggs or the eyes? Both. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know. Aren't eggs just the eyes of the chicken? <laughs> I, I guess they are. They're they're really, maybe. Part, so. They might be. Was that your phone so. beeping over there, Dave? No, that was probably yours. Oh, it was definitely yours because I'm not ordering Chinese food. I had dinner at a regular time. <laughs> and mine's on silent, so. Gyoza. All right. Yeah. That's not Chinese food. Now you're into Japanese. 
I know, I know. All right, I'm just making sure. So, anyways, we haven't done this in a really long time. We actually really haven't talked that much. So I think that's why this conversation for the first 10 minutes has been absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, well, where do you want to where do you want to start? Because we haven't talked for a long time. Well, well so no. um Brendan and I both went to PASIC last week in Indianapolis. Um, was that last week? That was just last week, yeah? The, yeah, the week it prior, was. Yeah. Um, so we, we had, we had a, I had a great time. Um, you know, during the day, we were um, sitting at the Loyal Drums booth and talking to people and, and uh, you know, getting to hang out and see a lot of people from around the country. Um, and we also had a performance and hung out with a bunch of people in the evenings. You want to talk a little bit about that, Brendan? Uh, which part? Hanging out with people in the evenings? Whatever you want. This is our podcast. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, so we were asked to do, uh, or I was asked to do a clinic along with uh, Jeremy Marks, and who's only in the old guard, and Alex Cladell, who's also in the old guard, do a clinic on rudimental drumming styles from Switzerland, American, and uh, Scottish. And so we kind of put this thing together sort of at the last second. And uh, we decided to call ourselves the Three Amigos. Um, we decided we were going to invite Dave because he would be considered the fourth amigo. <laughs> See, I, I, I still feel like you voted and nobody else. Like, <laughs> I feel like you're the only one who ever thought of it as the Three Amigos. <laughs> we, this was a thing that Jeremy, Jeremy and I were talking it, it's, uh, you know, it's a thing. Anyways. We had a blast. We had a really good time. Um, I get myself kind of freaked out before doing these things for some reason. Why is that? Do you know why? No, I don't know. I, I kind of psych myself out and I overthink it. And Do you put too much pressure on yourself to be oh, a perfectionist? For sure. Yeah. No, I definitely do. Well, that, I can't that, help it. We uh, didn't actually have printed out music for the, the new piece that we were playing. Um, right. Like 2 p.m. for a 5 p.m. clinic. Oh, um, that's nerve-wracking. Yeah. We, we, we were still, like, I was still sight-reading at 2 a.m. the morning before. Um, or, no, that morning. So, I mean, yeah, it was it was, it was definitely kind of throw it together. But it, it, it turned out really well. I thought it was really cool. Um, lots of... Uh, of uh, different styles of drumming. Um, Alex Coldell, um, in addition to being a phenomenal rudimental drummer, is also a um, pipe drummer. That's for him if he listens. He hates that. <laughs> he, he, he's a phenomenal pipe band drummer. And so, he, hates when, uh, he hates when Dave lays that pipe. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so pipe band drumming, Swiss drumming, and American snare and bass. Um, all in the same piece was super cool. Um, a lot of fun. What are you laughing about? What are my Chinese here? I, I just thought of it. What Brendan just said made me think of a time where Dave, you and I, and a whole bunch of people were at Scott and Corinne Mitchell's house, and like you would either stop by in the morning for a rehearsal or, or slept over, and you seriously, in all seriousness, went up to Scott Mitchell and said, "Hey, Scott." Do you mind if I go upstairs and destroy your bathroom? And he was like, "Yeah, sure. I guess if you." Had to. Yeah, that would make Sorry, me man. think of that too. Sorry. 
But uh, we, anyways, we had a really good time. <laughs> hey, but I'll tell you this. I saw uh, on social media, I saw your workshop clinic performance. That was really good. It was really, really good. I was really impressed. Thanks. That, that was the, uh, the finale. That was the last thing that we did. I think the individual parts of the clinics were, were just as good. That last part was a solo called um, uh, Pickle Seed Oops I Peed. And it was, that was the thing that we kind of threw together at the last second, um, you know, which was pretty impressive that we were able to, to pull it off so quick. So pretty happy with it. We're, we're going to be kind of growing this group and doing some things in the future. We're all pretty excited about it. That's cool. It looked really good. It looked like a lot of fun. David, you order your food yet? No, I'm still. Pepper steak looks good too. Oh, I love pepper steak. Go with the pepper steak. Expensive when you get it on DoorDash, though. Like everything's expensive when you get it on DoorDash. I know. Like I might just call the places. So we have to end the podcast early so I can call call in my order. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, good because we're not going to. <laughs> No, um, and so the other thing that that's going on is uh, uh, Brian, you went up to, to Gettysburg or down to Gettysburg for you, I guess, um, last last weekend um, for the the Gettysburg Remembrance Day parade. Or was it Seven Eleven? It might have been Seven Eleven. No, it, I was actually in Gettysburg, believe it or not. Yeah, I did. I went there. Uh, I made my way down there on Thursday, and then I came back like. I mean, less than three hours ago, I got home. So it was a full, full bore weekend. And it was, well, you know, they, they didn't have it last year. Um, and then the years before, which I went to one year, it rained like a bitch. I mean, bad. And then, then the year before that, it was, it was snowing and it was a bad snowstorm. So the weather this weekend was absolutely perfect. It rained going in Thursday night, but Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was dry, a little bit cool. The parade was gorgeous uh, the sun was out it was warm uh the place was packed and yeah man i had a i had a great time i played with gar which is a pretty pretty historic group of uh folks who represent a very specific part of the you know union army and um yeah it was it was really cool and it was a big group i mean they had a lot of a lot of facial hair in that group a lot of facial hair in that group Notice I mean, that. so these are the old guys, right? So these guys could never portray a Civil War era field musician, you know, with like Paul Benoit's, you know, six inches of white right. beard, you know. So right. can you imagine egg drop soup in that? <laughs> it, it would never come out. It would be there forever. <laughs> yeah, he would. He'd smell like egg drop soup for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was it was really fun and it was special and we had a good time and everybody you know ate a lot and drank a lot and hung out a lot and uh, I think I participated in seven jam sessions throughout the weekend. Um, I mean, it was just all all jamming and all partying and all marching and, and hanging out with people. So, hey, can can you like kind of walk me through what the whole week is? I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, so Friday, you know, essentially, if, if you get down there Friday, you kind of well, settle also, in. Was this also a special anniversary? It seemed like there was a lot more fife and drum people down there this year than I've ever seen. I don't, I don't think this was a special anniversary. I'm not it, like not by a year, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like not you know like a you know like the one fortieth or one fiftieth or one eighth. I don't know, but I think a lot of people were there because 
it didn't happen last year. And then the two years before it were really questionable as far as weather goes. Yeah. And uh, so it, yeah, it really exploded this year. And there were there were a lot of people there, and there were a lot of spectators. Man, there were spectators all over the place. But you know, they had they had stuff in place. You know, like a couple of years ago, they actually had people on the roofs. You know, kind of keeping an eye an eye on things for security. And this year, they had those Jersey barriers that you know the little you know the the backhoe crane things, whatever. They'd like block off all the side roads that were coming into the parade route and stuff so you know they're really kind of thinking it through so so friday whenever you get there and you settle in you know friday night there's a jam in front of the dobbin house which is a really historic building and i think it's one of the oldest buildings in gettysburg and that's a that's an outdoor jam and it's really cool you know and then everybody goes and does their thing for the night and then saturday is the big parade that starts at one o'clock um, so people, you know, kind of pregame at the bars and do some jamming before that, you know, and then the parade goes on and then there's more jamming at O'Rourke's, which is an Irish pub that's, you know, right in the hub of everything. And that jam goes till late. Um, and then there's this really cool place called, uh, uh, oh shit, I forgot the name of it. What's, what's the mine, Dave? You know, that underground... Bar, mine and saloon. I think it's called the mine. A mine is Reliance a mine. For waste. Yeah. So, so there's this bar that sits underneath this motel, essentially, and it's it's nondescript. You barely know how to get into it, but you walk into this dark bar and it's just crazy in there, you know. And it's, it's packed, a, and people are playing music. Yeah, the the uh, mine entrance, it, like it looks like you're going in, into a cave, like, yes. like into a, into a mine. But right. it looks like a, like a kindergarten class made built the mine. Yeah, know? like a plasticky thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's a little it's a little hokey, you know. Maybe it must have been cool in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. It is, but but the bar is cool and it's fun, and it's it was one of the few places that stayed open late, so it got a lot of business, you know. And then Sunday, most people go home. Uh, we stayed and you know did the battlefield toward the battlefield on Sunday, and then came home today. Now, there, there actually awesome. there actually used to be a, a jam session up on Little Round Top as well. It, oh, I, I had never done that, but I had heard about it. Um, was that a thing? Yes, it was a thing. I did that. I forgot about that. I did that this weekend. Um, and there were, it was, it was pretty light because it was cold on Friday, but, um, but they were like, you know, four or five of us and a couple of kids that were local that were learning things. So they got to check out this thing they've done, never done before, but it's right on top of little round top and it's pretty special, you know, you know, because the place is so historic. It's I mean, a wild place. Like, like if you've never been there as well, I mean, like, like just uh, standing up there and, and, and knowing the history of it, it's, yeah. it's wild. That's Colonel well, yeah, Chamberlain, right? Yeah. You know, soldiers were getting picked off by the dozens, you know, looking down over and one is Devil's Den, which is this big collection of boulders and rocks. And in front of that is what has now been dubbed because so many, so many soldiers got picked off by snipers there. And they have this, this was a kind of a cool thing and I put it on social media, but they have this picture at Devil's Den of this, there's this, this cropping of rocks and there are two Confederate soldiers i went looking around for where that rock is and i found it you know so i did a yeah here it is in 1863 here it is in 2021 it's pretty fascinating and pretty eerie so 
That's cool. So it's cool. Now I'll give you a pro tip. Right? So if you ever want Dave Knoll to pull your drum when you don't want to do it, just say, hey, man, I got to pull my drum because it's kind of loose and start doing it and do a shitty job. And it will freak him out so much that he will yank it out of your hands and do the whole thing for you and then give it back to you. I started doing it, you know, and, and he's like, hey, hey, what are you doing? That's not how you pull a drum. No, listen, we're on planet Earth. Use the Earth's <laughs> gravity to pull the drum. Pull it like this. Or were you and trying now, to pull it like above when, your head or something? <laughs> he, just, he, he kept pushing it down and pushing it down using gravity so to pull the drum. And then he like he you know then he's saying crazy things like now if you're making the loop you know take the rope put it around your big stupid thumb and then do that again and again and again and here's how you do a braid and then boom here you go you don't have to touch this for a year and a half and it was all done. <laughs> That's great. I uh, know it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. So yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah, I, I my computer froze as I was saying something really dumb, so I'm kind of glad. Good, good, opportune. <laughs> That's very opportune. Hey, before we get to this interview, yeah, we're, we're interviewing. This is actually from the Westbrook Muster, um, a couple of months back at this point, uh, but we're, yeah. we're finally excited to get it out. This was our first interview when we were all together in person, and it was pretty awesome. It was amazing. So, um, we're interviewing John Chalia. And uh, I, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Um, what's really cool is just to hear like the muster background music happening all the way throughout. So I, I it was really enjoyable for me to, to be able to do that with everybody there. Yeah, and uh, Greg Bacon really, really helped to make that possible as well, um, both from a technical side of things and also I, he asked a few questions or, or at least he did. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he did ask a couple of questions, and what also what he brought to the. You know the whole production was because uh, he's doing some video uh recording and documentary uh on john so and this is kind of part of it so he had he had his video equipment with his own audio on john where we had our audio on us and i think it came together from two different sources or even three different sources because he had two mics i thought it came together really well and it's yeah yeah it's really good and and john was pretty open and pretty candid and he didn't he didn't shy away from a lot of questions so it was definitely a fun interview I, I had a good time with it and like the environment I mean like that's the that's the environment that I know John in you know <laughs> um yeah so, like it, it was really cool we were sitting in the Casbah and uh, it was during during the tattoo so as he said the backdrop was was you know audible backdrop was was amazing so yes. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, and, and again, it, just to be able to do that with all of you guys, being able to pass around questions, and it just felt really natural. Sometimes it's hard to juggle, you know, who's going to talk when. You know, you can kind of hear each other talk over ourselves uh, from time to time. It's it's just difficult on Zoom, but to be able to do it in person, it, it worked out really well. So Yeah, and we had one mic, and we were moving it back and forth, right? Uh, which I thought was real smooth and yeah, I think it's going to be, I think people are going to really like this. And it's an important one, too. There's no doubt. Absolutely. Hey, but before we get to that, um, we're going to have Brian uh, do a little plug for our Patreon. We haven't plugged this in a really long time. Um, truthfully, we, we've, we're on like episode 
12 now or something like that, which is the same amount of episodes that we did last time. But um, it's becoming more and more expensive to to do these episodes. So if we can get more Patreons to help us out, we'll be able to, to put out more content and, and a little bit more frequently. Um, but yeah, yeah, Brian, what's the what's that link? Yeah, so, so if you do want to um, uh, become a, a patron or, or donate to the bottom of the glass, uh, just go to patron.com. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I spell that right? P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast. And you can donate. Or we have the patron link, I believe, on our Facebook and Instagram pages, unless that's fallen off at some point. Um, it's there. Good. Yeah. So, I mean, anything you could do, some people, some people donate. A little bit all you know all the time some people donate you know larger amounts more infrequently and it doesn't matter i mean whatever whatever works i mean we even had one model at one point in what we were talking about is if we could get if we could get a bunch of people to donate a, a dollar a month you know that would be great you know which is so however it works for you and if you want to do it that would be terrific if you go if you go to that link and do it we'd really appreciate it yeah, I mean, right now we're just at that uh, you know money line of being able to do one episode a month. We'd like to do more right. than that. It's been a little bit busier this year, but we'd like to get some more out. I, I think over the next few months. Yes, we have, we have some new ideas as well about things that, that we can do. We might even do a couple of episodes where we play some music. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Um, yeah. So we're experimenting with some some different thoughts, and we uh, we also have um, a lot of really really cool interviews that, that that we're planning on doing and we're just trying to to, to make work and find it time and everybody's schedules for some different stuff yeah really some really cool stuff too really really yeah. cool stuff a couple of them like we've talked if we're able to get this person we're gonna probably stop the the podcast at that point because <laughs> <laughs> why even go on it's just gonna be downhill from there but we'll see if that actually works out we, we have yeah. some pipe dreams for sure but we have this great interview coming up right now with john Charlie. Um, so yeah, here we go you can get anything you want at alice's restaurant accepting alice you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant So walk right in It's around the back Just a half a mile from the railroad track And you can get Anything you want At Alice's Restaurant da 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 At Alice's
We are recording this episode on Friday, August 27th, 2021, from the field in the Casbah at the Westbrook Muster. Now, this is all very fitting because we could be, um, we might be, in fact, we probably are doing the most important interview that we have done to date. Our guest today has contributed, influenced, taught, mentored, and changed the life path of more young fifers than most anyone I can think of. He is an arranger, he is a composer, a collaborator, and a teacher. John Chalia has been at the center of some of the most important fife arrangements that have ever happened. His work with John Benoit, his work with Skip Healy, his work with our friend sitting with us today, Greg Bacon, will go down in history as some of the most important and meaningful work ever. His gift of arrangement, particularly with harmonies, is second to none. You can put him in the same sentence with John McDonough, the aforementioned Benoit, and Roy Watrous. John started his fife and drum career with Stony Creek and then spent decades as a pivotal member of the Ancient Mariners during some of the most incredible years that Corps has ever navigated. I've been John's friend for 45 years and I'm not afraid to say that this interview intimidates me. John, thank you for granting this discussion, especially here at the 2021 Westbrook Cluster. You're entirely welcome. Thank you. Hey, John, we're really honored to, have to be able to do this with you. Uh, unfortunately, Dave still has his phone beeping. Over That's there. not mine. Oh, okay. That's not mine. It's somebody else's. <laughs> well, John, I want to start us off. Like, I want to know how you started and, and were your parents musicians and, and you know what your background in fife and drum was. Well, I was inspired by my dad from a very early age. My dad studied keyboard and, and counterpoint at Yale for a couple years before he was drafted and went into World War II. But he was very lucky to study with real 20th century master of counterpoint, Paul Hindemith, who was an amazing, amazing composer. So that's what got me started. Incredible. And, and, and I always heard that your father referred to the fife as a, a toy. He did. Yeah, he, well, you know, if you play a fixed pitch instrument like a keyboard, you get used to perfect intonation. Yeah. And my dad had great pitch, and a lot of the fife's range, I wouldn't say offended him, but he wasn't a big fan, let's yeah. put it that way. Well, they could still pre be pretty offensive, especially if you mix a few of those different fifes in a jam session. <laughs> I think we can all agree. Well, that's that part of the way. problem. That's a whole other discussion. But, you know, if you look at professional flutes, they differ from one another. In, in, they differ in tiny, tiny, tiny ways, designs of the head joint. But, you know, the scales are the same. You can take any brand concert flute and play it with any other brand of concert flute, assuming the two players know what they're doing and are listening. But that's not true. You can't take a Ferrari and play it with a McDonough and play it with a Healy. There's, right. there's no way to meld those instruments because the scales are entirely different. 
So let me so let me ask you this. I mean, if you if you still consider the fife a toy, uh, how do you write such complex charts if you believe it's a toy? Well, I I do the writing for its own sake. The writing gives me an immense amount of pleasure. I must say, the writing gives me more pleasure than my performances on the fife ever did. And, you know, I, I probably haven't been too good to myself all these years going around saying the fife is a toy flute, even though, of course, deep in my heart, I, I believe it is. But it's one that's given a lot of people a tremendous amount of pleasure. And to have had the opportunity to contribute in some way to all that pleasure is very important. I mean, I'm, I'm really honored uh, by the people who choose to play my music. So, John, where was the change for you from being a player of the fife um, to, to the start of experimentation, adapting, and eventually creating an entirely new style for the instrument? Well, it started for me in the early 70s. I think I was influenced, and I was talking about this earlier, by a Swiss group that came over that was quite slick. They had very sophisticated harmonies, not the sort of thing that you'd normally hear at Fasnacht, which is quite basic. And I thought, well, you know, with my background, I could probably do this if I wanted to apply myself. And so I got started. I think the first tune that I arranged was Bill Krug's Devil's Flute. I want to go back a little bit further before we get to Devil's Flute, because I think it's important that we talk about your arranging style, but I want to know your first days in Stony Creek and what that journey was like in Stony Creek for you. How old were you when you joined? I was probably in eighth grade or so, so I didn't start really, really young. Did you live down in Stony Creek? No, Stony I lived Brook? elsewhere in Brantford, but that was a five-minute drive to Seaside Hall from where I live. Now, how special were those years? I know Seaside Hall, I, I, I've taught there for the past seven years working with the drum line there. I know how special of a place that is today. Back in those days when you first started, how special of a, a building was Seaside Hall? Well, it was special even then. When you look around, there have been historically very, very few drum corps that have had the great honor of owning their own rehearsal facility. Right. I mean, there's Stony Creek. And... Yeah. Is there anyone else? Landcraft. Landcraft might own that building. I'm yeah, not I sure. Yeah, Landcraft owns it. Yeah. It's Mattituck. So really, the, really those old uh, male right. drum corps. Right. Yeah, then that's it. It's Mattituck. It's Landcraft. It's Stony Creek. I mean, they have, you know, they have the history uh, to own their own places, which changes them as a core, I think. Right. I think it really does. Because they're, you know, that location becomes um, kind of a part of their uh, their history and their heritage. Like, oh, you know, very much so. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's inseparably entwined. It is. It certainly is. So, John, um, I, I'm really interested in some of the, the, the more technical aspects. Obviously, here you're talking to uh, to three drummers, and we're talking to uh, um, a, an amazing fifer and fifer ranger. Um, you know, and so our questions might be a little bit different um, coming from us. But 
to, to understand um, how you put some of these arrangements together, do you follow a for, like? Do you have your own formula for it, or is it something that that's uh, well, more I have experimental? Several formulae. Okay. And depending on the character of the piece in question, I'm going to apply one of those formulas. Sure. Um, and, and like, do you do you experiment with that? I'm, I'm sure that the answer is probably yes in oh, some yeah. in, 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 in yeah, some fashion. All the time. All yeah. the time. The big issue for me in writing for the fife is remembering to change texture as frequently as possible because the fife has such a limited tonal arsenal at its command. It's important to bring voices in and out all the time. Otherwise, you know, I can think of charts that I wrote in the way back that were my first quartets where all the voices played through the whole piece. And that's a big error. And I should have learned that in music school from analyzing the well-tempered clavier and the art of the fugue, even the Bach chorales. It's really as important to bring them in and out as anything. So are these formulas your own or, or are these adapted from Oh no, from I would say that, that most of what I do is, is very derivative. Uh, it's just not a lot of people that I'm aware of have applied this to fife and drum. As I've always liked to say, the really good musicians are the ones that leave the toy flutes behind and, and go on to the instruments that you'd see in an orchestra. So that's where the really, really cool writing is happening, in my opinion. Can I jump in and ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, John, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about is how you're, how you're building that texture and how you've, you have an A part that repeats a few times, a B part that repeats a few times. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you think about those parts? I know you don't like to repeat the arrangement all the way through, um, but can you describe what that means a bit more? Well, I think when you've got these binary structures, and most drum cartoons are binary. There's no reason to use mirror repeats when there's the opportunity, again, to bring those voices in and out. And there are often many times where there are different harmonic tactics that you can apply to the same piece. We spoke earlier about taking Whoop Jamboree and arranging it as a major tune instead of what normally would be expected as a minor tune. All that stuff's there. If sufficient creativity is applied. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, because I, I think that you're the first person, as far as I'm aware, that will do that. You'll let the melody stand on its own. Most five arrangements before that, you would have a second part and a third part, and it'd be written for the ability of, of the fifer, and it would be cons consistent all the way through. So the fact that you're, you're building that second, third, fourth, maybe even fifth part to have its own voice is pretty, pretty unique. So when you first started writing like that, was that looked upon as perhaps weird or different? Or well, I can, really I can think of quite a few of the old timers, especially even Roy Watrous, whom I adore to this day. He was not pleased by what I was doing. It was, it was looked upon as though I was trying to civilize something that shouldn't be so civil. You know, the fife was supposed to be loud and raucous and, you know, what are you talking about? We're going to play with dynamics. You know, the drums always are on us up. Just get out there. Every time. Just and get it, out there and play as loudly as you possibly can. Right. And that was against everything that I believed. And now, do you think that goes back to, you know, that understanding of, of the fife being a toy instrument and trying to elevate it into something greater than what it was perceived? Yeah, I... 
I thought from the beginning, despite its many limitations, that fifing could be brought much further along than it had been when I started as a kid. And I was very impressed. I saw, saw the regimentals perform a couple times when I was younger. And at that point, coming from Stony Creek and then listening to those guys, it's like, I didn't know the Fife could do this at all. Listen to these old men just absolutely wailing. And that was an, another inspiration. I said, you know, I ought to be able to do that too. And you think that's what led you from Stony Creek to the Mariners? Absolutely. When I played with Stony Creek, I was focused on individual competition. And I did pretty well. In 1969, I won the Northeastern. But in 1970, Stony Creek didn't go to the state meet again. So I was disqualified. You know, if your core didn't participate, you couldn't defend your title. So at that point, having gone to a few Mariner rehearsals, I said, you know, I like the Stony Creek guys, but the book at that point was just so much more interesting. Yeah. With guys like Ed Olson and, and Roy Watrous around, I said, like, why would I not want to play this literature? I'd like to kind of, and we talked about this, you talked about this, Brendan, um, and, and John talked about this a bit in his answer, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper with your 
creative process and when you are putting together arrangements, harmonies, collaborations, have these have these things come to you like, you know, by a conscious effort of spending time and working on them or have they come to you like in the middle of the night or just kind of suddenly and all of a sudden there's a com- there's a combination of those two Having written so many arrangements, I don't know how many, but probably approaching a thousand, I would guess at this point. Uh, I'm at the point these days where I can look at a new chart that that Greg sends me and I can almost immediately tell what I'm going to be doing with it. I just look at the overall structure and I understand that stuff much better now than I did when I started. So it gets, it's gotten easier and easier. And then as far as something happening in the middle of the night there were occasions where I was having voice leading problems and I just couldn't solve a particular measure and then I'd be out for a run one morning not thinking about the chart at all and all of a sudden it's like somebody whispered in my ear dude that's what you have to do in that measure and I run home like yeah there's a solution but it's like somebody gave it to me it's not almost like I didn't figure it out myself so that's, yeah, that's kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think that there's more room for fife technique and influence to grow um, with some of these these more experimental ideas? Yeah, I do. I think there's no reason that there should ever be uh, any diminished effort to, to raise things further and further. I mean, look what, what happened with the guard. I think of the the OG now as opposed to the guys that I knew in the Mariners who were playing there 30 years ago. The the level that Billy White has brought it to is just phenomenal. Just, you know, and I almost regret using the word experimental because it's it's the game has changed in a lot of ways because of the work that you've done and because of you know the work that that others like you have done bringing this into kind of the modern age. There there are all sorts of extended techniques that are used on the flute that could be applied to the fife, like singing into the instrument while you're playing, doing flutter tongue, um, holding holes closed that ordinarily would be open so you can produce multiphonics. It's possible to do some pretty cool multiphonics. So I don't know where I would ever score something like that in the middle of an arrangement. That would be more of a, a solo technique, I should think. You can't have a whole five line. I suppose you could have a whole five line out there singing into their instruments at the same time. But. So you mentioned John McDonough as being, you know, a, a, an influence on your writing, an influence on you, uh, understanding of, of taking the fife, elevating it to a different level. Can you compare his style to what you do today? Not really. Um, the New York style, the, the McDonough style, used an entirely different method of articulation. Whereas the orchestral way we articulate notes on the flute is ta, 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 ta. They play ta, 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 ta. And so they're making tongue stops. So the tongue has to make two movements for each note, ta, ta, instead of just one. And the way, the proper way to do it, and the way that all the orchestral people do it, when you want the tone to end, you just do it with your diaphragm. Right. You know, 
you don't give double duty to your tongue and it's much cleaner sounding. Right, well it's hard to line when you're that articulate with an instrument and, and we notice that now with some of the drums that have elevated to being very tight, you have to be exactly right on with the person next to you with your articulation in order for it to sing, otherwise it clashes. So I, I think you're right when, when you take that, the, the, that style of playing and making things feel a little bit longer, it does blend a lot more and it makes it sound yeah, like I think I think it was, it was absolutely remarkable that the Reggies played as well as they did using that kind of it's, it's antique technique. Right. Nobody's done that for probably, I don't know, for nearly forever. It's just not ever taught that way. Um, I, uh, I actually asked uh, John Benoit. I, I reached out to John Benoit, and I, I, and I told him that we were going to be talking to you, and, and he, had, he had some very interesting things to say about you, and he thinks this interview is an important one. But he also told us how to interview you. <laughs> he also told us how to interview you, <laughs> which, of course, he does. <laughs> yes. And yes, he sure, did. Make sure you give yeah, him yeah. time. Yeah, sure give him, yeah. And then, like, Thanks, then ask him that and make sure you've got a follow-up, you know, because if you're not, it's going to suck, you know, anyway. But, but <laughs> I would love to ask you about, you know, the early days of your collaborations with Benoit and with Skip Healy. I mean, how... Because we've, we've seen the... There's video and, and there's... It's, it's been archived. How crazy and great was it to collaborate with those guys in Switzerland and all over the world? Well, it was fantastic working with Benoit because, as you know, he, he's definitely on the short list of the greatest fifers ever. And what was interesting is we really pushed one another. You know, I get to a rehearsal with him and I say to myself, I'm not going to let that son of a bitch play better than me. <laughs> so, you know, I go home and work my butt off for hours and I'm sure that he did the same thing and we got to the point where some of our rehearsals we wouldn't even play tunes we just stand and play exercises for hours on end all trying to build technique and that was a great thing that's just the way you do it if you're playing a non-toy flute right. do you have an advice for for fifers I'm actually changing up my question based on that last one um, uh, but do you have any advice for, for fifers on ways, on things that you don't see them doing enough that you think could, could just elevate their performance? Yeah, I would think one of the first things that they would want to do is develop their ears a little bit better because the intonation that I hear from most fifers is absolutely terrible. Even people playing, you know, the most modern fifes that are out there that can be played very close to in tune they don't do it the other thing and i mentioned this earlier is i hear most fifers trying to play as loudly as possible all the time and that's not the way you actually build up your chops the way you build up your chops is trying to play the third octave as quietly as possible it takes an enormous amount of muscular control to get your embouchure to a near microscopic size and play a high B pianissimo. That's a much more difficult trick than just blasting one of those high notes. And it takes more, more strength and more control and, and then just spills over into the rest of your technique. It makes everything else that you do easier. So that, that reminds me, it leads me to uh, 
What kind of a story and another question. I, I remember I was hanging out with you and I think Bill Hart in Basel, Switzerland, really early in the morning at the Bogenstrauss, 10, 12 years ago. But we, were, we got into a really interesting discussion about the orchestration of fife and drum and what you believed it should be. And, and that kind of goes back to what you said earlier, how fifers overplay sometimes. And do you think that's a result coming from three drummers as the drummer is overpowering fifes and having to be beyond that. Well, in my entire career, I've ne rarely seen situations where the drum line wasn't murdering the fife line. It's just, you know, and I, I can name any great chord that you want to talk about. And, you know, I'm not a drummer, but I get the impression from watching you guys that it's a lot of fun to, to open up and play loudly. <laughs> and I also, from having run a zillion rehearsals, know that I can't think of a drummer who wants to be told you're too loud. Right. Yeah. So, so to continue that that thought a little bit further, how can drums best support an arrangement of yours? By not trying to be excessively intrusive, by not writing drumming that's busier than the fifing is. Uh, you know, any long string of sixteenth notes gets pretty boring. Yeah. I'm sure it's fun to be able to to uh, whip off those incredibly fast paradiddles and whatnot, but I think it's important to keep in mind that number one, in fife and drum, and I hate to maybe say this to you guys, but the, the drumming is the accompaniment to the fifing. If you want to do wild and crazy drumming, that's the place where you go out and write yourself these great drum solos, where you can do anything you like without worrying about upsetting the balance. Ideally, and you'd know this if you've ever listened to a lot of the Irish flute bands. You know, an Irish flute band might have 25 flutists and maybe two snare and one bass, and maybe a tenor drum. Even in sessions, one baron player, the second baron player comes in, they show him to the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, do you feel like, I guess it's a case by case basis, but do you feel like the, the, the bass drum can, can be a voice on its own with perhaps a second fife? Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think in general, there aren't enough charts where the bass drum gets to feature itself for a bar or two at least someplace. Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that arrangement you did of Sylvia's tune is a good example of that. I found that very impressive because you did let the bass have their own voice. Well, honestly, it, it comes from, for me, I have my brother Colin and my brother and my dad, who both play bass drum, and, and my dad grew up in the Connecticut Yanks where the bass drum line was not an accompaniment to the snare drum or fife, it was another voice. So I get in trouble when I forget about that. So I, I've been, you know, in tune with having to make sure I spread the wealth around and make sure we're supporting you know, yeah. different parts. It's just more interesting. It's always more interesting when voices coming in and out, it leads the ear from one place to another. And you want to be leading the ears of the listener at all times. It's sort of like creating that stereo sound in person. Yeah, I would agree. So speaking about, about ears, um, for, for us um, drumming, there's a lot of listening going on. There's, there's a lot of, of, of play with time. Um, and so with the groups that you've been involved with, both Stony Creek and the Mariners and, and many others that you've been involved with, 
Uh, drummers have a tendency to have have some tempo fluctuations um, within um, within our music. We, we we kind of open that up to, to expression and things like that because we only really get one note, right? <laughs> one one pitch. Um, so that's that's kind of how we work with that. How do you feel about the the tempo fluctuations within the rudimental drumming and fife and drum ensembles? Well, I think it's I think it's interesting. Again, we had an earlier conversation where <coughs> I mentioned that uh, a core that I participated with, I, I won't name them, but they used to practice to a metronome. And I can tell you, if I take a piece, an arrangement, and sequence it all perfectly at 92 beats a minute or whatever the hell it is, it's really, really boring. And it's just not the way music gets played. There have to be these perturbations between the strains. There have to be places where if you've got an appoggiatura that you slow down for that appoggiatura or where you've got a, uh, a suspension that's resolving over a bar line. You just can't slam through those at, at tempo. They all require nuance. If they didn't, then we would need conductors. Sure, right. Well, and, and so, so how do you work on that as a, as a fifer who's, who's playing on their own? Like, do you, like is there... It, you just need to really pay attention. Because keep in mind, even if you are studying with somebody, you're with your teacher a, a tiny percentage of the time. Maybe you go in and you have a half an hour lesson a week. Well, the rest of the time, you have to be your own best critic. If you can't get your ears to the point where they're a little bit ahead of your technique, then you'll never get any better. You be, need to be able to conceptualize the sound that you want and then work toward it. You know, if, if both your playing ability and listening ability you know, come to some kind of stasis, then you don't make any sort of advance. I don't know. I always thought, you know, what else can I do that I'm not able to do now? Let's find something like that and work on it. Um... So, I mean, you have been around, uh, obviously, fife and drum, fifing, snare drumming, bass drumming for so long. Do you know how to play any songs on the bass drum? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know all the rudiments. You know, I did a couple Mariner gigs playing snare drum when they you know, were really desperate for a snare drummer. And I'm a lousy drummer because you know, I pick up sticks like every five years or something. I just had no reason to pursue it. But yeah, doing jobs on bass too. The Mariner drumming is not complex. So I think any fifer who has paid attention could probably do that satisfactorily, or should be able to do it satisfactorily. Yeah. I think for the Mariners, it's more about the, the stylistic interpretation that's been passed along for years. Than, than I think it's, it's incredibly important if you're gonna write for the fife that you have hate to use the word rudimentary, but it's really important to understand a lot about drumming. I mean, look at Jim Clark on the other hand. Jim Clark's not a bad fife, and he took up the fife just to have more understanding of what he was going to try and accompany. And I think, I think that's really important. So we, we've talked a lot about your arranging, uh, but we haven't really talked much about your playing. And I... I know you're a very complex individual. There's a lot of things going on in your brain all the time. 
And I know when you're like that, when, when one is like that, it becomes very difficult to perform and enjoy the performance. Was there a time that you could think of that you really truly enjoyed a performance? Yeah, there were many times, especially with Benoit and with Skip. And there were experiences that were viscerally different from one another. Playing with Benoit was all about let's have perfect intonation, perfect rhythm, everything as refined as possible. Whereas when I go on the road to Spoleto or Mardi Gras or something with Skip, we're just like, let's have a couple beers and go out and be really loud. Yeah. You know, let's pass the hat and make as much money as we possibly right, can. Right. And that style was entirely, entirely different. I would never do that with Benoit. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I feel like when I'm in a, in a performance situation and I have all these guys that are around me, it becomes very difficult to enjoy that moment. The few times that I've actually been able to enjoy the moment, I don't remember having that performance. It just kind of happens. So it's always like to hear that. Yeah, I often enjoy the moment. I was lucky. I got to perform so, so much. I was almost never nervous when I went out there. Yeah. And that's incredibly important, you know. If you're worried, oh, here comes this difficult measure that I always have problems with. As soon as you even start thinking about something like that, you're going to screw it up. Right. Yeah. It, it, it needs to just happen. When you're doing it, you shouldn't be thinking about it. It, it should just go on automatic programming, all of which you've, you've gained through your practice time. Yeah, and it it is that, you know, I can absolutely relate to what you just said, Brendan. You know, when, when it's all vibing and it's all working, it's almost like I don't remember. I don't even, I don't even listen to it. It's more of a feel. It's more of like how it felt, you know, as opposed to how it sounded. And that happens to me a lot. Um, so, so John, do you have some pieces, some works, some stuff in your head that has not been arranged, composed, or put down on paper yet? Do you have stuff up there? I certainly hope so. Yeah. You know, and it, it's kind of like a, a stream which flows along and, and, you know, some of the material will start here and there and never get worked on. And, and you know, there'll be other times where there are roadblocks in my mind that uh, become erected and then I have to work on one particular piece to the exclusion of everything else but you know I could never say that that's a constant state of affairs it always changes so how much has your arranging changed over the years I think it's changed a lot um, my dad put me on all the right steps for me because my style is so contrapuntal, it was exceedingly important that I studied all the core Bach material. I mean, it's contrapuntal, but it's contrapuntal in, in, in sections, as you said before. Well, some, yeah. There are places in Bach where you know, he's not being particularly contrapuntal, especially in some of his vocal writing. But that's part of the beauty of it, is that it changes. You know, I think any one style, if you entertain it really, really strictly, is going to get boring eventually. So it's the old you got to mix it up thing. 
and 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 Bach is is a major influence on your arranging. Oh, more than far more than anybody else. So, can you talk a little bit about the recording process? So, you, you you've you've had several recordings that um, I think we've all grown up with them um, and listened to them quite a bit. Um, as far as a performer. Um, playing your arrangements, going in, recording it, if it's something that just kind of flows naturally, okay, one take done, well, that, or yeah, if it's that's, perfectionist. That's the way to do it, and I regret that I never did it that way. John Benoit would, and I would go in, we'd always lay all the tracks down separately. We never, ever were playing at the same moment in the studio. If we were, one of us was in an isolation booth someplace. We'd never, ever just stand in front of one mic and go to town because we're just way too much of perfectionists. You know, nothing was ever good. Sometimes it would take us days just to do one chart. Well, it loses the spirit of the music in that moment, too. And yeah, often, often it does. Whereas when I recorded things with Skip, we'd go in, we'd have one go, and unless there was a really major screw-up, that one go was it. Speaking of recordings, I, I know I have a, a rotation of maybe like five Christmas albums that I listen to. I got the Bing Crosby, I have the Temptations, and, and then I have uh, MCV's Chris on Christmas Day. So, can you talk a little bit about that uh, that album and it, just in general your your time working with MCV? Well, the Christmas album, <coughs> pardon was one of the most enjoyable things that I ever did with MCB. Because that old literature, much of it is absolutely great literature. And to have the opportunity to have arranged all those wonderful old carols was very, very special to me. And in many regards, that remains my favorite of their recordings. Yeah. Even though from a technical standpoint, you know, there's, there are no fast licks, there's nothing hard but I, I think that's what's so enjoyable about it. The simplicity in, in the, the playing and, and the arrangements. It's, it's just very homey and beautiful. And, and uh, I, every time I think about that album, I'm like, ah, I want to do that someday. I want to write a Christmas album. But I, I go back and listen to it. It's like, you guys already did everything.
I was influenced to a great degree <clears throat> by the fact that all through school and all through college, you know, I was always in a choir. And all choirs will take out that Christmas literature at one point or another and sing it. And there are a lot of pretty standardized arrangements. So I always was in the bass section. And I think a lot of the bass lines resemble what I remembered from being in choir. Then there, you know, there, there's some carols that were arranged by Handel, some carols that are arranged by Mendelssohn. And of course, I wouldn't think of changing a note that those guys wrote. So, you know. Now, would you say that MCV is probably the closest thing to what you're looking for in terms of a balanced group, you know, between the fife line and the drum line? And, you know, you, you hear the, the, the beautiful tonalities and, and uh, just the perfection that MCV's fife line brings. Is that probably a, the group that you would say, like, finally has brought your arrangements? You know, yeah, they've, they've, they've done a very, very good job. And uh, they should be exceedingly proud of themselves. Sarah is an absolute perfectionist, and she drives them incredibly hard. I was shocked to learn that when I played with them for the first year and we went to the Deep River Muster, I couldn't go to the bar and have a couple of beers before the end of the parade, because we were 100 yards down the street practicing for the parade. And I'm like, are, are you kidding me? But, you know, that's the degree of, of dedication that she has. And... Um, given the fact that over the years there haven't been too many individual MCV fifers that I would call really, really stellar players, but there were a lot of very, very good players who yeah. could do things very they, much they together. Yeah, yeah, very much together. Yeah, I mean, that, that group is, is certainly inspiring, to me anyways, on, on how they operate and how they, they rehearse and their dedication. Um, you know, and, and not being a competitive core, you know, quote unquote. Right. The fact that they have that, that drive to, to be great is, is pretty, pretty incredible to see. Well, it's funny. Somebody said to Benoit and I one time, it doesn't look like you guys ever have any fun. And I said, playing really well is fun. Yeah. Playing poorly sucks. Yeah. Figure it out for yourself. It's not rocket science.
So, so what is what is next for you, John? What is what is your next thing? What is your next uh, project? Your next collaboration? Your next well, Greg and I are in the process of putting together a third book. We're well into it, and that's that's my emphasis right now. I mean, occasionally I'll get a, a call from MCV or somebody else needing a chart. When that happens, you know, I'll take care of those, knowing that I can get back to, to this one thereafter. So I, I would say besides the collaboration with Greg, the next two things, I think MCB has a, a tattoo in Brussels next year and another one in Dusseldorf, perhaps. I could have the names wrong. That's what I thought Sarah said to me. So I'll be writing the majority of those shows. So I, I actually would like to ask Greg a question, and then the follow-up question will be for you. The, the, the question for Greg is, is, what has this man meant to you as your development as a ranger and, and a player and, and just as a friend? And then vice versa, what's it like to be able to work with Greg? Uh, how much time do I have? You have all the time <laughs> in the world, man. Um, I was telling John earlier that... Um, when I was, I don't know, 16 years old or so, I bought the Mariner album before I joined the Mariners, went home, listened to it, and was completely inspired by the Sea of Ale and the Dock Street Mermaid, which is, you know, a, a quartet that's probably four or five minutes long. Never heard anything like that. And at that moment, it completely changed the direction of my life, quite honestly. I joined the Mariners, traveled all over the world with the Mariners in Switzerland and you know, got to know John through the years. And uh, and then, of course, in the last, um, you know, five or six or seven years, I guess now it's been, um, you know, we've been writing a lot of music together. I think we're close to 200 pieces at this point. Yes, I believe you're right. Um, and I've told John this before, like, I feel like I write a little melody. It's kind of like a little penny that you put in one of those, like, machines. You pay a quarter and then you crank it and then it, it spits it out. It's like a cooler penny at the end. <laughs> Splat, I, give, I give John the penny. He spits it out. It's way cooler. So I don't know. I could go on, but that, that's probably the best analogy I got. <laughs> well, I'm fortunate to have such great raw material. You know, what comes my way is frequently amazing and never less than very interesting. So I'm given a great opportunity. If you've got a great literature to start with, there's no reason you shouldn't come up with a great arrangement. And if you don't, it just means that you haven't worked hard enough. For me, arranging has been very much the same as the fife. When I wanted to become a good fifer, I knew that I had to spend hours a day over a period of years to get there. And the arranging is the same way. And having so much material, you know, I spend often a couple hours a day, and it's helped me to really refine my technique. Have you ever been completely happy with something you have composed? Well, I'm not much of a composer. I wrote a few tunes back in the day. So I, I, re, I never refer to myself as a composer. I always think of myself as an arranger. And yeah, there have been some charts that have been exceptionally satisfying. I've never written a chart where I didn't think there was some room for improvement. And when I'm not working on a new tune now, I go back and study all the stuff that I've sent to Greg. And it's not that infrequent that I'll say, uh-oh, voice leading error here, 
or, you know, some little diacritical missing there. And so I leave time to try and find all those little refinements that, that can be inserted. Mm. So was it a learning process for you to, to kind of figure that out about yourself where... Um, oh, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, to, to realize that, that you weren't going to be a composer. You know, when, when I started doing this, you know, I would just whip off a tune and pretty much forget about it and go on to the next one. Uh, I was too easily satisfied. I didn't spend enough time really studying what I was doing. When that happened, that's when I started to, to get better. So in hindsight, it's learning the process more than, than yeah. Yeah. right trying to do everything. So can you, what do you think about the current climate of fife and drum today? I mean, we, we've seen... I think with the addition of the Junior Fife and Drum Camp and, and more room for arrangements that more groups are playing, the talent level seems to be, while the, the, the groups have been diminished in, in terms of their numbers, but the talent level seems to be as high as it's ever been, particularly in the Fife. Yeah, I would agree. And as somebody who really only comes around twice a year, I come to Westbrook, I come to Deep River, I haven't done a parade in decades. So as someone who comes by very infrequently, I'm often very pleasantly surprised at the level that I hear, especially out of some of the kids. And I, and I think, you know, from my perspective, and you can agree or disagree, I think that comes from your arrangements and John Benoit, you know, pushing everybody to learn all of the scales, all of the modes, all of the keys. It used to be just, you know, G major, D major. Now it's, it's, it's completely beyond that. Well, I think that's a good thing. You know, even, even though it's, quote-unquote, toy flute, there's no reason not to apply all the same kind of study to it that you would to a concert flute or any other instrument. It's scales and arpeggios and all that stuff. Those are basic chops, and you should have them in all the keys if you want to be a really good player. Now, so to me, that, that comes from that deep-seated, the fife is a toy. How do we elevate the fife to become... Uh, a, a more uh, aesthetically pleasing, uh, a, a more uh, respectful, you know, all of that. Well, we keep doing what we're doing and trying to pay attention as much as possible. I think, you know, I refer to it so often as a toy flute back in the day, just to be deliberately provocative, which is part of my nature. And But I've said to a couple of the really good young players that I'm getting to know bit by bit, you know, go ahead and try and be the, the best fife player on the planet if you can, but don't forget about your concert flute, you know, have some musical outlet that you can parlay maybe into a living or something. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to, I've been hired by one professional group once in my whole career. John, I want to follow up on that. Um, so there's a lot of youngsters out there like Sylvia and Vincent, uh, Emily, who's a little bit older than those guys. But these are all folks that are, you know, uh, studi have studied music. You know, they're not they're not hobbyist fifers and drummers. Yeah, these are people, and it shows. It right. It really shows. And I wonder, I wonder if that's one of the things that's going to help fifing become more recognized more broadly is when we have more musicians that are, you know, bringing it into universities and sharing it in other places. And I, I'm curious of your opinions on how those young people can help, um, again, elevate it and, yeah, and, just, and show. Yeah, just by their example. 
I mean, in the same way that I was amazed the first time I heard John McDonough play solos, I hope the kids who are this big now are absolutely amazed when they hear somebody like Emily do what she can do. It's got it's to start there. It's got to... A good player needs to start out with a real sense of wonder. It's like, well, can I go there? Can I get there? And the answer is, yeah. And it's mostly about hard work and talent cost. Uh, is far less of the equation, in my opinion. You know, having done as much teaching as I've done, uh, the students that I had that turned out the best or most capably were often not the most talented ones. They were the ones that went home and just practiced their butts off. And you've seen it from your teaching too. I'm sure all you guys have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's nothing replaces the hard work ethic. Just I'll take a blue collar kid any day over a cocky kid that comes in thinking he knows everything. And, and there's, there's no growth for, for a student who knows their level, their limit. There's nothing beyond that. So I, I'll, I'll take a kid that will so growing up through through this uh, this time period in fife and drum, you've seen a couple different shifts in in the fife and drum community. Where do you see the future of, of fife and drum as we kind of enter into the now the semi quincentennial, which they love it when I use that word, um, you know, and and beyond beyond that. Nice. Well, I think that in, dude. I think a lot of it is going to depend upon young people coming up now who are going to start doing what I've done for my whole career. If you have people out there coming up with a lot of great literature, it's just going to inspire the whole movement. That's what's really, really necessary. You know, I think it's a great thing for a kid to be able to stand out there and play over a hundred tunes, you know, that have been in standard literature forever and ever. And it's good to memorize the Bruce and Emmett book like we did when we were kids. But the real future is the creativity that comes from new composition and arrangement. Yeah, it's the horizon has to be pushed all the time. Absolutely. And John, this this has been a, a huge honor for us to be able to do this and, and be able to, to capture you know, your thoughts and, and your ideas. And I I know that I'm very appreciative of, of this opportunity to be able to interview. So I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm. Um, honored to have the interest there and I'm always surprised that there seems to be so much interest yeah there's interest uh, there's interest there's no doubt let me ask you this one final question um, which I uh, so what how do you see your and you may not have an answer to this but how do you see your legacy how do you want to be remembered? How do you want uh, these younger generations to look at you as an arranger and a fifer and all the important things you've done in fife and drum? Well, I hope they're not thinking too much about me. I think they should be thinking about the charts themselves. That's where the real interest is. Uh, I think you can learn more about me by playing the charts than you actually can and having a conversation with me. Yeah, I, I really think that the charts say the most. And one other thing I'd like to mention that I'd really like to see out there is 
a few more bass fifes. You know, when when I started doing all these arrangements, a lot of people asked me, well, why don't you just store the bass voice for concerts? Everybody's got a concert. Bass fife is going to cost you a couple thousand bucks. And my response was, you know, I don't want to recreate a flute choir because there are a million of them out there, you know. Nice. Well, yeah, John, this has been incredible. We want to thank you for, for doing this and taking the time to speak to us today. It's uh, super important um, to the community in general to have you here. So thank you very much. You're quite welcome. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate Thanks, John. it. Yep. Been yep. a pleasure.
If you've liked this podcast and would like to support the Bottom of the Glass, go to patreon.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast to donate or click on the Patreon link on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And thank you. Program produced by Michael Blancaflor. Edited by Brendan Mason. Hosted by Brendan Mason, Dave Loyal, and Brian Watkins. Podcast music was created by Michael Blancaflor. Logo was done by Andrew Ruddle.